Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Yeah, it just adds credibility to like, you know, who then was a little kid asking for a million dollars with zero material experience and ever running anything. It was fantastic. That was the other big inflection point in the development process and slowly started to get more folks in the door. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs who are building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in, and welcome to our tribe. Today is episode 109, and I'm so excited to share these stories with you, Solar Warriors. This one in particular has been on my to-do board for more than a year, and I'm grateful to Jinya for his first ever podcast appearance. His depth of experience, candor, and generosity will blow you away. It sure did me. You can find more great founder stories and solar startup advice in the other 108 episodes archived over at mysuncast.com. While you're there, check out our Suncast tribe, where you can be part of my inner circle of solar warriors and trusted advisors. Click on the member button to learn more. And now, get ready to tune up your skills, solar warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Today on Suncast, we are going to go down memory lane, but we're also going to learn a lot about an entrepreneur in the solar industry that I've come to know, like, and trust, as our friend Scott Sullivan says. And the reasons are varied, but at its core, it is a story that we're going to unpack today of a driven entrepreneur who has pushed the boundaries, pushed the edges. So I'll give a quick intro, but Jenya Medbury, I just wanted to welcome you to Suncast. Thanks for having me here. It's good to be here. Indeed, man. Good to have you back. Well, I say back because we recorded this in San Francisco and uh, technological advancements aside, we've had a a failure here that I'm going to have to re-record. So I like to be as honest with the Solar Warriors as possible that things don't always work out as planned or on the first go-round. But here we go. We're going to do this again. I found a couple of things by way of introduction that I thought were really poignant, Jinya, and I think they'll allow us to segue into my first question. But first, if you don't know Jinya Medbury, Jinya is the VP of Solar Technology for Cypress Creek Renewables. Before that, he was VP of Strategy and BizDev for DNV GL's Lab Services Group, which acquired a company we'll spend some time talking about here that Jinya created called PV Evolution Labs, or as many of us knew it in the industry, PVEL. Jinya was the founder and CEO of PVEL and has had quite a storied career. There's a lot of accolades, and we may talk about the accolades, we may not, but he's one of the industry uh, experts on module reliability. And on LinkedIn, he's got a couple of recommendations that I think adequately couch the way that Jinya is perceived in our industry. Jinya has been a pioneer in understanding the crucial linkage between product reliability and project finance. And I'll add that he did so at a time when not a lot of folks were really looking at how to solve that problem. And he solved it for some big time players in the industry. And another quote here is, Jinya is a visionary who took the risk in opening a startup company during an economic crisis and succeeded. And that, my friends, is why Jinya is on Suncast today. So Jinya... Help us understand, how did you get into 
the solar industry? Where did the idea come from? What was the germ of an idea or the seed that was planted? So uh, I grew up in San Jose, which is about 50 miles south of San Francisco. Pretty suburban, boring place. Didn't really do too much academically. Didn't take school too seriously. Played in bands mostly. Kind of goofed off for a long time with some friends. After high school, continued playing in bands and you know, ended up hanging out with a friend a couple years after high school. And she said, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to UC Santa Cruz. And I said, oh, all right, I'll, I'll check it out and I'll do the same then. Went to UC Santa Cruz, applied to one school, was about maybe a year into my uh, school. And I was, I was doing an electrical engineering program, basically recommended by my mom of what I should do in college, uh, electrical engineering. So I said, okay, sounds interesting enough. So I was maybe a year into UC Santa Cruz and I was doing electrical engineering and I kind of was at that point where I had to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up. And uh, so I thought, you know, I could go down a more traditional electrical engineering path and, and do circuit design for whatever, an electric razor company or equivalent and, uh, you know, do that for 35 years and then retire. And then my contribution to the world would be, uh, you know, somebody got a closer shave or something equivalent, which I think, you know, someone's got to do that and it's great work and, you know, circuit design is interesting stuff, but I wasn't for me. And so I looked around at a bunch of different electrical engineering paths and, you know, you obviously go on to electricity when you research electrical engineering paths. And uh, I looked at different power generating technologies, which really interested me at the time. And you look at coal and natural gas and nuclear, and they basically all boil water, create steam, spin a turbine, even CSP, like Ivanpah or Nevada Solar One, even wind, all you're doing is spinning something. And I thought, okay, here's electricity generating technology, spin something, spin a turbine, generate electrons. And then I looked at solar and I thought, this thing is, you know, flat plate, opaque piece of glass, you put light on it and electrons come out. It's nothing moves. Where's the spinning bit? (laughs) Where's the spinning bit? It looked like friggin' magic to me. So I was like very, very intrigued by the technology of solar. Didn't seem to make sense to me at the time. There was nobody researching solar in UC Santa Cruz at the time. This was maybe 2003. And so I did some research online, found a bunch of books by this real pioneer in the industry named Martin Green, who's a professor at a school called University of New South Wales, UNSW in Australia. So I just bought all of his books online and just read them in my dorm room and they were great. I got super into solar technology. One of my professors at the time at UC Santa Cruz, a guy named Ali Shakuri, suggested that I look into organic PV because... This is like the Kanarka stuff, right? This is what Kanarka eventually got into. They okay. were doing dye-sensitized cells or Gretzel cells before. But yeah, they got into OPV before their uh, subsequent death. So... He suggested I look at organic PV because solar at that time cost, I don't know, maybe a module was 10 bucks or 20 bucks a watt. And we really needed a, just a, a revolution, a giant step function because the current technology obviously will never be relevant to like mass scale grid electricity contribution. So I researched OPV and quantum dots a whole bunch and was super intrigued by it. Tried to do that research in grad school. Didn't really find a university that A, I could get into, and B, was researching it. <laughs> mm-hmm. The ones that were leading the world and researching it were uh, MIT, a professor named Vladimir Bulovic. So I ended up going to Boston University for grad school and audited classes with Vladimir Bulovic doing organic PV. 
great professor, very interesting stuff. So you graduated USC, UCSC and then went straight into grad school for a master's in mechanical at BU. Electrical, but yeah. Or electrical, excuse me, a master's in electrical at BU. But you went to BU because you didn't think you could get into MIT or didn't get into MIT. That's right. And you wanted to be near this guy, Vladimir. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's genius. I mean, I don't want to gloss that over, right? Like people, people often ask, what's the value of grad school? How should I approach getting to grad school? Like, I think that the advice that I give or that I hear most often is kind of what you said. It's either you find the best program or the leading thinker and you find a way to be in their space, right? You find a way to get inside the room with them. And so you manufactured by way of going to BU, you manufactured a scenario where you could be present and even audit classes at MIT, even though you didn't get into MIT. Yeah, that's right. That's genius. There was another guy there named Mark Baldo, who uh, at the time had created the first solar cell made out of spinach proteins that (laughs) worked in the same way that photosynthesis works. And uh, very inefficient, and they lasted a couple hours and whatever, you know, obviously not relevant in the broader industry today, but super interesting. And I just wanted to work with these guys and kind of learn what their crazy ideas were. And they were both great, super forward thinkers and you know, probably still are. So the idea just, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on it, but the idea with organic PV was like this guy taking uh, spinach proteins. You're, you're looking for other ways to organically generate electricity from sunlight. So traditional solar panels created then and created now are made out of silicon. Silicon is made out of sand. And the process for turning sand into silicon are these massive, massive refinery type plants that you know, have billion dollar investment required and, you know, you're, you're melting down sand and purifying and purifying and purifying and a single, a mono single crystal of silicon is the most pure material, the most pure crystal made by man ever. So these are very, very advanced materials. And the, the dream with organic PV is that you take these super cheap, simple materials, you spin coat them or coat them in some other way on some roll to roll process and just create kilometers of PV on a, you know, the, basically the same thing of, of, that, of that a potato chip bag is made out of. Got it. So it's a way effectively to disrupt the costly silicon refinement process. Yeah. The problem is they only last a couple hours in oxygen and moisture and the, the reliability problems are, are non-trivial and have yet to be solved. And in the process, you know, China got really serious about it, ramped up some serious scale and, you know, lo and behold, modules today are 30 cents, not 30 bucks. In your investigation in grad school, were you also learning about the silicon refinement process that you were trying to disrupt, or was it just kind of thinking off on the other side of the spectrum? You know, it was kind of the traditional mistake made by (laughs) a lot of VCs in 2008 of looking at crystalline silicon and saying, wow, that's expensive. Let's go look at something else without really delving into why it's so expensive. You know, NanoSolar and Solyndra and all these thin film companies, NuvoSun, they raised hundred million, five hundred million, one billion dollar VC rounds in two thousand eight when what was making crystal and silicon expensive was a polysilicon bubble. You know, polysilicon was four hundred bucks a kilogram when a couple of years earlier it was twenty bucks a kilogram. And, you know, doing your diligence, one should have found that and come to the conclusion that additional polysilicon capacity will come online and the fundamental underlying price is not four hundred bucks, it's fifteen you know, module prices will crash in the near future, making all of this thin film investment basically irrelevant. And that's easy for us right now in hindsight to kind of look back oh, and say, sure. oh, right, this is this is totally logical. But in 2006 timeframe, you're graduating from BU, organic 
PV is not taking off. Uh, <laughs> That's uh, right. But, but global uh, PV installations around 2006 are starting to become more prevalent, bolstered by things like the California Solar Initiative coming up and a lot of engineering work that was happening in primarily California. That's right. Yeah. So coming up on the end of my grad school in 2006, I started working the Google machine and trying to figure out what solar companies existed and just started emailing every single one. And I tried to harass Evergreen and Canarca since I was in Massachusetts and those guys were in my backyard. And, you know, in retrospect, fortunately, they did not return my calls since both of them are gone now. But they're, you know, they were both interesting and great companies at the time. Most companies did not return my calls. I was, you know, very aggressively pursuing them and I would approach them and say, look, I have an electrical engineering master's degree. I really want to get into engineering, but I'll do your HR. I'll be your janitor. I just want to get into the solar space. I'll do whatever you guys need. Eventually, I uh, pounded the pavement enough there. And one of my professors at uh, Boston University, turns out one of his former grad students that uh, was before my time, we didn't overlap, worked at this small company in San Jose called SunPower. He said, oh, I'll introduce you and maybe you can make something happen there. So I... Uh, harassed his former grad student and flew back out to California and, you know, didn't get a job, but eventually she created an internship for me. And that was, that was amazing. That was, you know, working with, you know, Dick Swanson and Doug Rose and all these, Dennis DeCooster, all these visionaries that were way ahead of their time. You know, I made 18 bucks an hour and it was, I had a master's degree and it was my dream job <laughs> living at my parents' house pretty much at the time. I would think I was about 26 at that time. You're how old? 26. 26, yeah. So, because again, we've glossed over it in the beginning, but you had an early career, I, I, I guess you would call it that, as uh, a musician and you'd bounced around in bands. <laughs> yeah, career is probably a bit overselling it, but yeah, I definitely played in a lot of bands. Okay, so you graduated BU and you got this job at SunPower. Is your first job out of school? Do you remember when first you started? job do, out of school. Do you remember when you started? Was this like your dream job or what? I started January 3rd, 2006. It was the first Monday of 2006, I remember. And uh, I was ecstatic. This was my dream job. I was working in solar, doing all this super cool, interesting stuff. You know, a lot of people don't know that interns tend to have the coolest jobs in companies because they, they get like some super interesting project to just work on. So that's what I got. I just got some super interesting projects to work on, creating kind of working on next-gen weird skunk works technology stuff for SunPower. That's cool. But you were working on a team that, that reported directly to Dick Swanson, right? That's awesome. Well, you know, he was the CTO. All the technical stuff reported up to him in some way. You know, he definitely wasn't my direct boss, but he's a super nice guy, super open and personable. And I just loved working in the same offices as him and being able to pick his brain whenever I wanted to. That's cool. So eventually you, you got a slot on the roster. This is still 2006. And in 2006, there was a famous, now famous, acquisition of another Bay Area company. Tell me about that and how that changed a little bit the, the dynamic of your role at SunPower. was an intern there for maybe six months or so. I don't remember exactly how long. And then finally got hired on as a reliability engineer and uh, worked on developing tests and doing reliability accelerated testing for SunPower cells and SunPower modules. So one thing that's very tough about that space is that the standard warranty on all modules is 25 years. And it's 25 years because I believe it was Siemens that first did it back in 2000. Uh, because, you know, they did it, everybody else had to do it. And this was driven by the marketing departments, not by the engineering departments. 25 years is what you had to do. But 
it's very difficult to simulate 25 years in a commercially reasonable time frame. I always like to say in 25 years, my unborn children will be graduated from college. So that puts it in perspective at how long 25 years is. You know, you could do a test for 25 years and then, you know, it's irrelevant because the technology has moved on. Or you can try to really think about accelerating different stressors in the field like temperature and humidity and UV and things like that to accelerate this stuff, uh, this aging, so you can evaluate it. So anyway, I, I worked on the sun power cell and module as a reliability engineer. And then in, I believe, 2007, it was that uh, SunPower acquired a company called PowerLight. SunPower was a total technology, San Jose, Silicon Valley technology company. PowerLight was a developer and an EPC, and they were, you know, crazy developer cowboys. So, you know, it was a little bit of a different vibe over there. But, you know, I had spent the last, you know, at that time, I had been at SunPower for about a year and a half, and I had spent a year and a half commuting from San Francisco, an hour and a half down to San Jose, and I was pretty over it. And... PowerLight was up in Berkeley. And so that's much closer to San Francisco. So I moved over to the, to the PowerLight side of the business. And they were buying modules from all the guys that were around then. You know, Sanyo was a big supplier. QCells was a big supplier. SunTech, Yingli. And, you know, looking at a bunch of other guys that don't exist anymore nowadays. And so I was tasked with qualifying all the module suppliers that they had. You know, back then, them and most developers to qualify a module supplier, you have a commercial discussion, you negotiate price, and then you place your PO, right? So commodities, you know, everybody viewed it as a commodity. Modules all look the same. They smell the same. They all charge on a dollar per watt basis. They all generate more or less the same number of watts. So I built out a, a lab in the East Bay for, at that time we were in Richmond. We moved over to the new Richmond office, built out a lab there and started putting these third-party solar panels through the reliability testing and, and found, interestingly, surprised myself, found that these really do perform differently. They don't all perform the same. So I did a bunch of work developing a qualification test program over there. It included a bunch of accelerated lifetime testing that PVEL would later do and factory audits and things like that that I perform myself. So I'd fly over to India and to China and to Germany and wherever and perform these factory audits. And we did a lot of this reliability testing and some of the modules performed pretty well. Some of the modules performed okay. And some of the modules just performed not okay, really degraded very quickly. I was looking at this data thinking, wow, this is really valuable. And, uh, you know, doing some of this testing, we knew more about the product than the guys trying to sell it to us. They didn't know why this stuff was degrading or how it was degrading. You know, they all had the 25-year warranty and they would point at that and say, look, don't worry. It's they didn't even know why warranty. the 25-year warranty was 25 years. No, that's right. This is at PowerLight. So a year and a half after you came to SunPower, you get this incredible opportunity to start doing reliability testing within SunPower now for a subsidiary named PowerLight that is focused entirely on project execution. And you are building, like you said, this skunk works internally. One of the things that sounds like you're, you're describing is the discovery that they're the bill of materials, the way these modules were packaged, the way they're put together was not the same, right? That what looks the same on the outside is not always got the same internals. Is that accurate? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, can't judge a book by its cover, as they say. Can't judge a book by its cover. Uh, one correction is one when SunPower acquired PowerLight, they changed the name to SunPower. It was SunPower Systems, right? Right. At the time, that's so right. It, it was no longer called PowerLight. So I never worked for technically PowerLight, but I crashed their reunions anyways. That's awesome. That's awesome. So you're working. <laughs> so at this and at this time, I think Dan was the CEO of SunPower Systems or the president or whatever it was. And president, that's yeah. right. He was the head of the office. Right. 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 Yeah, they were total cowboys. It was. Uh, I've, 
<laughs> Dan must have loved that you're uh, that you're a musician as well. <laughs> there were a lot of musicians in that office. You I know, know the, like attracts. The, the lab downstairs had lots of instruments. This is circa 2008. As you're kind of going through 2008, 2009, I can't remember when. So why don't you? Why don't we talk about Pivel here? You got this crazy idea while you're working at SunPower, with which is arguably your dream job, or stated your dream job. You don't have the prescience to know that a global financial crisis is around the corner. <laughs> I certainly did not. But, but you've got this crazy idea. Tell me about this idea. Sure. So I was working at the SunPower Systems business, having a great time testing modules. And I looked at the data we were generating and I thought, wow, this is really valuable. We are making more intelligent decisions as a developer and an IPP than anyone else in the industry at the time. We were disqualifying manufacturers. We were identifying flaws and working with manufacturers to help them improve. There were many times that I had to jump on a plane with 24 hours notice because something was going sideways out in the field and go to India and you know figure out what exactly was going sideways, doing a bunch of testing to validate the fix was correct. And so I was looking at the data and came to the conclusion that this is valuable data and that this isn't just valuable for SunPower. This is valuable for the industry. The industry will be better if people investing in projects have higher standards and have quantifiable standards, not you know brand-driven, marketing-driven, gut-feel, relationship-driven, but actually quantifiable metrics around reliability testing. So I thought, I was hanging out with a friend that also worked at SunPower at the time, and we thought, yeah, why not try to raise some money and do this for the industry as a service rather than just for SunPower? Sounds like a nice idea, but we had no idea how to execute on an idea like that, right? I know. You're listening to this episode because you're tired of doing things the old way and looking for a new approach. And that is precisely why my friends at CPS America, aka Chint Power Systems, have agreed to help make this fresh content possible for you. See, they believe in the power of change and the importance of trying something before others catch on. They are the U.S. market share leader of three-phase string inverters, pioneering that approach since before it was cool. With over two gigawatts shipped in America, Chint's feature-rich, high-performance inverters and its nimble service team are ahead of the pack, just like you. If you'd like to find out what CPS can do for your CNI and utility business, reach out to me for an intro, nico at mysuncast.com. Or you can reach out to them directly and just let them know you heard it here on Suncast. You said it was a friend at SunPower. Did this person end up becoming a co-founder with you? or? Yeah, that's right. Who was that? I don't, I don't think I have that. Uh, his name is Rajiv. Often choosing a co-founder is basically like choosing a mate. Was Rajiv working <laughs> in, the, in the desk next to you? Like, why Rajiv? Why not someone else at SunPower? Uh, he went to grad school when I was an undergrad at UC Santa Cruz. And so I knew him from college and he was more or less a drinking buddy. He had a PhD in electrical engineering. He uh, knew how to run a lab. I trusted his uh, skills to run a lab, and I was kind of going to do the other commercial stuff. Kind of came to the conclusion that, hey, let's, let's see what starting a business might look like. And I came home as somebody with an engineering education and zero business education. I came home and I Googled the words business plan and uh, what is in a business plan and found that you got to come up with you know, a sales plan and a marketing plan and come up with pricing and come up with example customers and an example transaction and what's it going to look like and what's the exit potentially going to look like down the road. That's how you sell it to investors and, you know, what are your expenses and what's your financial plan, so on and so forth. Anyway, so I started to kind of chip away at the glacier and 
come up with different plans to do the different things. This is 2009 at the time. The global financial meltdown has was upon us. Yeah. And, uh, and you're, I had still, a nice, you're still an employee at SunPower. Oh, yeah. I had a yeah. nice steady, steady job with healthcare. My wife was pregnant now with our first kid. And I started talking to investors. I used to keep a suit in my car, park in SunPower. You know, at lunch, I'd run downstairs, changing from my jeans and t-shirt into a suit in my car drive down to Sand Hill Road, talk to some billion dollar VCs that was like super inappropriate for me to be talking to them. But you know, it was 2009. So they weren't doing a hell of a lot of other investing activity. So they were all very nice and willing to talk to me. And uh, I gave them my pitch, asked them for $1 million. And they said, we're a billion dollar fund. We don't make $1 million investments. <laughs> but every single meeting I took, every single meeting I was able to score rather, was very educational. I updated the business plan and the pitch and the way I talked to folks and, you know, the PowerPoint itself every single time. You know, I started out with a, you know, a 50 slide detailed presentation delving into all these details and realized that's totally not the way you do it. You want to have, you know, a 20 or 15 slide, you know, much higher level, much less, much less content in the deck and much more conversational discussion with potential investors and then have some backup materials in your back pocket as needed if they want to drill down into any of the topics. So I probably, yeah, met with 50 different VC firms down on Sand Hill Road and around the whole country. Wait, around the country? I thought you were, you, so you're doing, was this around the country via virtual calls or, I mean, you're, yeah, yeah. Okay. So still on your lunch break. Yeah, that's right. Still on my lunch break. You're, you're cruising from <laughs> Richmond down to Sand Hill Road, as you put it. So you have zero experience launching and funding in business. I presume that you're getting some advice. Were there early seed money? Did you have early uh, supporters who were helping walk through your deck and helping you sort of iterate on the business plan? So initially, I did not. I was more or less flying blind and making a whole ton of mistakes and, you know, giving presentations that these guys aren't used to seeing. Being grateful for the full-time job. (laughs) Being grateful for the full-time job and being very grateful that these uh, VCs are taking an hour out of their day to meet with me and giving me some advice. Most, Most of the folks I met with actually gave me advice and it was valuable advice that helped me iterate the pitch. So I had a I had a coworker at SunPower, a guy by the name of Ben Carver, great guy, engineer, decided to go back to law school after having an engineering degree, which I found kind of crazy. But uh, he went to law school and he got an internship or kind of an introductory position, as associate position at a firm called Wilson, Sonsini, Goodrich and Rosati, or WSGR, how they are known in the industry. And I was talking to him back in 2008 during InterSolar. And I, I was telling him my idea. I wanted to start my own company. I wanted to start a lab that did this reliability testing for the financial community. And he said, oh, WSGR is having a cocktail event tonight. Why don't you come and try to like, you know, pitch some folks. I'm sure there'll be some investors there. So I went to this WSGR cocktail event at Inner Solar 2008. And I met a guy named Bob O'Connor, who started their clean tech practice, is a great guy, is a partner over at WSGR right now. And I pitched him over a cocktail that I want to start my own thing. And he said, he said, hey, why don't you come by the office on Monday and, and we'll have a broader conversation. Sounds interesting. Let's let's keep talking. So I came into his office, gave him the pitch and he said, you know, yes, let's work together. I'll help you develop your plan. We'll sign an engagement letter that WSGR will be your law firm once you become a company. Should that eventuality happen, I will defer all the fees, all the legal fees, which which was huge considering I had no money at the time. And I'll help you 
develop your business plan, make some intros to investors, things like that. And that turned out to be the first and a very significant inflection point in the process. So Bob was fantastic. He was much more than a lawyer. And what I found over the years is that if your lawyer is only doing legal work, then they're not a very good lawyer. They should be doing a lot more commercial support for you as somebody that's trying to start a business. And Bob went way above and beyond. And he and I would sit in his office for hours and just flip through the deck. And he would say, you know, that sucks. That's stupid. Modify that. That's okay. Keep that. Change that. I came out of that process with a very different pitch and a very different deck. And then I want to put a pin actually in that point. Because I think this is something that's all too often overlooked by guys as they're starting their business or even as they're, as they're, I mean, as a project developer, if you're expanding into a new region, I see this in Latin America all the time. Lots of lawyers are good at the lawyer stuff. Sure. Not as many lawyers are good at the commercial stuff. And right. what you just highlighted, I have found true in my own life, in my own business, and in my friends who are doing really well in Latin America, for example, are the ones who are able to vet lawyers for not so much their technical prowess, because if you have a good firm, you're going to get that either from them or their team, but their connection and their ability to understand at a commercial level what you're trying to accomplish. That, in my view, is the major value of lawyers. I mean, I, I could point to a plethora of guys, but it sounds, right. like, sounds like Bob O'Connor, as you said, was an inflection point. And I, I imagine that he, as we were talking about, sat down and went through the deck with you and really helps you iterate. So Go ahead. Yeah, Bob O'Connor was fantastic. His firm was great. WSGR is great. I can't speak more highly about them. They're awesome. He made a bunch of introductions to potential investors, you know, slowly over the course of talking to five and then 10 and then 30 and then 50 potential investors. Uh, you know, I initially started out as kind of presenting the idea and walking away. And I got a little more aggressive as time went on and, you know, melted my uh, social boundaries <laughs> away of starting to directly look people in the eye and ask for a check. That helped a lot. You know, you got to look potential investors in the eye and say, you know, can I count on you to be an investor in my company? Can I count on you to write me a $100,000 check or a $500,000 check or a $500 million check? You know, for the ones that weren't interested or weren't able to invest, I would ask them for introductions. So most of these guys hang in communities of similar folks. So they've got a lot of other investor friends. And, and most of them, if you ask, they'll say, oh, okay, yeah, I will send a bunch of introductions because I think your idea is great. It's, or it's sufficiently interesting, but it's not right for me. Not a good fit, yeah. Whatever, that's fine. I mean, most of the, most of the investor folks I met were very nice and sent lots of introductions. And then you just kind of start working down the tree of potential investors. You know, you go ask, if you ask every rich guy for an intro, you'll eventually know all the rich guys in the country. I love it. So <laughs> I love it. You had not only Bob, you had a number of notable folks who eventually became board members. Help me understand the process of curating at a time where you have no money, no experience, no customers to point to other than the fact that frankly, SunPower was your first customer for real about this, um, right? Like you sure. had this real world experience where SunPower had said, we choose you to do this for us. And you're saying, hmm, I could probably make a lot of money doing this for a lot of, or I can make more money doing this for a lot of people versus sole sourcing my skills to one company. Help me understand how you decided, you and Rajiv, to go ahead and build out that board. And if I recall, you have a kind of funny story about how you turned your boss into a board member. <laughs> Yeah, it was probably more like my boss's boss's boss. But yeah, Bob O'Connor introduced me to a lot of different uh, just finance folks in the industry as well, just to just to give them the pitch, hear what their feedback was, help me iterate and evolve the plan. And uh, one of these guys was the CEO of Tioga, which was a big CNI developer, a guy named Paul Dietering. 
And so I was in San Mateo kind of given sharing the pitch with Paul. He was giving me some feedback. Here's what we would potentially be interested in. Here's what's not relevant for us. You know, just helping me evolve what the business plan looked like. And, you know, it's a Tuesday or something and I'm, you know, well-dressed in a suit or something after the meeting, standing in a, standing in a parking lot in San Mateo after meeting with Tioga, getting some input from Tioga. And I hear, hey, Jenya. And I look up and it's Dan Sugar. And, you know, like I said, at the time, he's my boss's boss's boss. He's the president, president of the company right. you work for. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and he's like, hey, uh, what are you doing here? And I'm like, oh, nothing, nothing. Uh, and he's like, you still work at SunPower, right? And I said, yeah, 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 I still work at SunPower. And my heart's, you know, beating out of my chest and I'm super nervous. And I'm, I'm pretty sure he's going to walk away from this encounter and get on the phone with my boss and say, hey, what the hell is Jenya doing in San Mateo? And my boss is going to say, oh, no, he's down in the lab. And, <laughs> if, and for those who don't, aren't familiar with the Bay Area, Dan lives in a town 21-ish miles northwest. I won't say it here on the podcast, but he does not live near San Mateo, nor is the office of, of uh, SunPower near San Mateo. <laughs> nor do I ever uh, come to work in a suit. <laughs> this is such a like it's this yeah, yeah, random, yeah. completely chance encounter in yeah, a random, parking lot. In the parking lot of some random office building. Amazing. And so... Uh, Right then I decided that, okay, I got to spill the beans to Dan because I'd rather he hear it from me than from my boss and, you know, some other source. So I said, hey, let's go grab lunch. And he's, he at the time had uh, just gotten the first Tesla Roadster. That's right. One of the first Tesla Roadsters. And so he's like, hey, come for a ride in my Tesla. And it was, you know, an amazing <laughs> experience. That's awesome. And he was super excited about it. And so, and I was super nervous about it. You know, we go to lunch. And uh, we're eating sushi and I just start spilling the beans. Okay, Dan, I'm trying to start a company. I'm talking to folks for input here. I was just meeting with Tioga, whatever, so on and so forth. And I thought one of the potential outcomes was going to be, you know, slamming a fist on the table and him saying, all right, you're fired. Get the hell out of here. To my pleasant surprise, that was not his response. He said, you know, interesting. Let's talk about it. We talked through a bunch of stuff and, you know, we kept talking over the next, you know, week and month Then, you know, he provided a bunch of fantastic input and, you know, helped with introductions to additional potential investors. And, you know, I asked him to be on the board. He, he agreed. I left SunPower. I formally quit SunPower at that time to get Dan to join the board because there's... Conflict, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, I, I think he was on a sabbatical at that time, but nevertheless, I didn't want it to look weird. He was one of the first investors. He committed some angel money. He got on the board and he was my first, you know, big named guy that signed up big industry titan. This is amazing. And, you know, with, with Bob O'Connor as my law firm and with, you know, Dan Sugar as my first board member, you know, the dominoes started to fall Carry a little faster. And yeah, it just adds credibility to like, you know, who then was a little kid asking for a million dollars with zero material experience and ever running anything. It was, it was fantastic. That was the other big inflection point in the development process and slowly started to get more folks in the door. Behind him came in Dave King from Sandia Labs. Got Rob Coach, you got Matt Shaney, you got Andrew Rutger. Funny story, can you tell about how Andrew Rutger and his company helped sort of up-level your ability to present to an audience? Yeah, absolutely. So you're right, we had a, scored a bunch of high-name board members that you know, we probably, in all fairness, shouldn't have had. But you know, this, is another, this is another example of just you know, social boundaries melting away and asking people that are way bigger than you to be on your board. And, you know, a lot of times if you ask, you know, these people are nice and they say yes. So Andrew happened to own a graphic design firm as well. 
So that was that was handy. Uh, a company called Kinetic Fin out of New York, and they did all, all of our early graphic design work. They made the Pvel logo, designed our business cards, built the first website, and like I didn't really know that was something I had to do, you know. <laughs> but you know, great input from experienced folks uh, suggested that uh, that was that was how it was done, and we had a professional logo and a professional look. And, you know, one of the most important things I found over this very long extended fundraising process is we were very tight with our collateral and our deck. And, you know, after the Andrews firm helped create a real logo and a real look and feel, they kind of coached me on never let anything mediocre go out the door with investors. Always keep a great look and feel to all of your collateral and all of the investment material and, you know, keep it all super professional and clean and crisp. You know, now having exited a company successfully, I've had various entrepreneurs send me their decks and asking for help and asking for intros to investors. You know, some of them are really great. And some of them, just the the look and feel of it is just very Mickey Mouse and, and there's grammatical errors and, you know, stuff's going off the side of the page and there's a graph over some text and it's just built haphazardly, like without care. One thing Pvel did right in retrospect that I, is a strong recommendation is never let anything mediocre go out the door to investors. You know, have a very high standard for yourself and uh, that helped a lot. When we were finally closing the funding round, one of the investors turned to me and said, this experience has been really great, really solid. Everything we've gotten from you has been really, you know, clean and, and well thought through and presented in a very professional way. And that, I think, goes a long way. So, yeah, Andrew's firm, Kinetic Fin, definitely helped us get there. At one point, you started getting customers, right? Inventech was the first customer you've got. You're building this board. Is that right, Inventech? Inventech was a... The first manufacturer. Uh, the first manufacturer who was a customer in what later became the product qualification program. Oh, but at SunPower. They weren't... No, no, no. This was at Pvel. Okay. But they weren't, they weren't the first customer in general. So when we first started, there were tens of solar manufacturers within uh, spitting distance of Berkeley. We, we ended up putting the lab in Berkeley, bought some equipment. It arrived in early 2011. And I was going around the Silicon Valley area talking to all the nano solar, Nuvo Sun, Greenvolt, Soul Focus, Solyndra, you know, Mia Soleil, all these guys that aren't really around anymore or have gone through bankruptcy and restructured and got bought by Hanergy. So initially I, I thought we would just be flex capacity for them. You know, we have a lab, here's the equipment we have. So call us and let us know what you'd like us to do for you and we'll charge you for it. And, you know, that didn't really catch on and folks started dropping like flies pretty quick after that. And I thought, oh, geez, we got to really go double down on targeting the financial community because they're not going overseas. They're here. Dan Sugar at the time opened the door with Solaria. He was the CEO of Solaria at the time. He And we started doing some work for them. So Solaria was really the first client. That was great. They kept us alive in, in year one. We actually worked with Abound Solar, yeah, which was Colorado. one of the you know, Solyndra Jr. out of Colorado, who was great. You know, they were actually one of our first clients as well. So I started talking to the financial community, the banks, and they're all similar to fundraising, you know, just started harassing that as many folks involved in development, finance, project ownership, project execution, and just giving them the pitch that, look, a module is not a module is not a module. They look the same. They, they feel, smell the same, but you uh, do some reliability testing and they quickly deviate. And there are some that are awesome and there are some that are less awesome. And we can do the testing for you. And I quickly learned that 
banks and, and investors don't really have capital to support internal R&D, basically qualifying vendors, basically to pay us what we wanted to do. So we- Because you wanted banks to pull this data through, basically. You wanted banks that's to That's right. So we, we quickly had to think about how do we create a program that banks can benefit from, but not pay for, because they're not going to pay for it. And so we came up with the idea of developing what we call the product qualification program, where we developed a reliability test program, like no rocket science there, no IP there. It's all open. No, I went around to conferences and presented it. And on one side of the table, I had manufacturers that would pay the bills. They would pay us to perform this product qualification program. We would do the reliability and performance testing. And on the other side of the table, we had the buyers, the buy side, IPPs, EPCs, investors, banks, lenders, tax equity, whatever. And they didn't pay a cent. They just signed up for it. They agreed to look at the data and use it to qualify vendors. That's it. So free data. Free data. Free data. And even that was hard to sell. Most of these banks, I mean, they're not technical folks. They're financial folks. And, and most of the banks said, look, we have a process right now that works. We don't need another step in the process. Thank you. But, uh, you know, go on your merry way. Then SunTech went bankrupt. That definitely helped. They were the largest manufacturer in the U.S. at the time or largest supplier to the U.S. They didn't manufacture here. You know, I would probably estimate about 15% of all the solar panels installed in the US were SunTech. And they were now stranded with no warranty at the time. And, you know, this just really supported my argument of you can't rely on contracts to protect products. You want to just have confidence in the modules that are generating the cash flows. I have since been through many warranty claim situations and they never go smoothly and they never go as one would hope. You know, these manufacturers always push back. So it, it, definitely is in the best interest of the buyer and the investor to do some technical diligence in addition to the commercial diligence that they were already doing to not rely on the contracts, but rely on the product itself. So I went around making that pitch. Clean Power Finance was actually the first kind of developer IPP to sign up for the program. Okay. So I I think I understand what it is uh, you were trying to sell, but so the listener can totally understand who's the first customer and what did they pay for All right, Solar Warrior, if you want to hear Jenya's answer, learn all about how he eventually exited the business and what he sees coming for solar next, you'll want to tune in next week for part two of this fantastic interview. I know what you're thinking. Oh man, Nico, that was amazing. I learned so much and I'm so sad it's over. I don't want to wait. Mm, Not to worry. We can continue hanging out through the rest of the week online and in my Solar Tribe community. You know, the fact that you're still listening tells me that you really do enjoy and value what we're doing here at Suncast. And if that's true, and you've been wondering how we can connect more or how you can help, would you please consider supporting the podcast financially by becoming a member of my Solar Tribe? Just go to mysuncast.com forward slash member to learn more. And of course, you can also always join hundreds of other Solar Warriors. Subscribe to my email list while you're there. I look forward to formally welcoming you into the tribe, my friend. And thanks again for showing up. It's half the battle.